that's fierce, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a fierce thing to re- to really open our heart to loving another, whatever that other is, whether it's an animal or a, a place or a home or a partner or a friendship. On some level, we know this isn't going to last. This has a termination date. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men This Way. Do you regularly turn away from the sorrows of the world? Are you aware of the great cost to your vitality, your joy by doing so? And why might it be important to regularly confront your own sorrows, even if you think you have none? Well, in this episode, my guest Francis Weller and I mine these questions and more for useful insights to make a meaningful difference in your life. Francis is the author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow. It's probably the book I recommend most these days. And I actually featured him on a recent podcast. And honestly, if I get my way, I'm going to continue sharing our conversations and podcasts to come. Like a conversations with a mentor kind of thing. Because Francis Weller's work has touched something immense in me personally that I believe is also vitally important for our collective humanity at this time. And I keep using that language when I speak about him and with him, something vast and immense in me, because I don't know how else to say it. I would say he's written one of the most beautiful books on grief and sorrow that I've ever read, but the truth is, it's just one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. And when we first spoke, the conversation which I shared in a recent episode, I felt as if he was helping me finally explore a vastness inside me that previously had largely been untapped. And in this episode, I describe it like a vast cavern inside me that has been blocked off, obstructed for much of my life that I didn't even know was there, much less where to find it. And that his work on grief and sorrow is finally showing me the way and showing me how to unlock it. I would have never guessed the key to that space in me would be grief and sorrow. Death has largely spared me, so much so that I recently had a family member survive the near approach of death. And while I was naturally glad and relieved, I was shocked to find a part of me also angry. Now, it's a long story, um, and I wasn't angry because I wanted this person to die, but because I have been dying to finally touch a lifetime of untouched grief. And this experience, um, it brought so much up to the surface, not even related to what they were going through, but just the context within which it was all happening. And um, <laughs> in many ways, I was essentially prevented I don't know about prevented, but, but the, 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 the excuse to grieve didn't come. And I noticed anger was there, and I was fascinated by that. And so I bring you again a profound and rich conversation with the very wise Francis Weller. And in this conversation, we talk about the critical importance of regularly confronting sorrow, our own and the world's. We talk about creating regular grief and sorrow rituals too, which I'm personally eager to get started with, and I encourage you to start that in your community as well. We talk about our ignorance in the face of grieving and how we just don't know how to do it or how to be with someone when they are grieving, much less be with our own grief. We talk about this and so much more. And also, I want you to know that Francis is hosting a five-part online workshop soon on the five gates of grief, which I highly recommend enrolling in. It's not expensive, and I'm not being paid to promote this. I just believe deeply in his work. You can find out more about that at the Row Center. It's R-O-W-E dot center, Row dot center. 
Now, I want to just cut in here real quick and also tell you about something that I'm really personally excited about that I'm offering specifically for men who want to elevate their relationship game. It's called Elevate Your Relationship. It's a six-month live coaching experience with me for men who are feeling maybe stuck or stagnant or frustrated by love and intimacy and relationship, or for men who maybe just want to learn how to do love better. I strongly encourage you to learn more about Elevate Your Relationship. I'm actually right now offering a free online training event to share more about this. And in this online event, you'll learn three powerful tools that can make an immediate impact on your relationship experience. The details are at elevaterelationship.com. Go there to learn more and get access to this free training. In the upcoming months, I'm going to be telling you a lot more about this live coaching experience. I'm going all in on this because, you know, there's plenty of relationship support out there in the world in ways that work for women. But for men, I say we are severely underserved when it comes to mentors and teachers and coaching programs that can help us do love and relationship better in ways that actually work for us. So again, I'm just getting ready to launch this essential experience for men. Go to elevaterelationship.com for more details and to get access to this early training. (sighs) All right, now I invite you to take a deep breath and stay present with Francis Weller and I all the way through to the end of this episode of Men This Way. All right, let's dive. Hello. Hey there, Brian. I'm so grateful, Francis, that you've uh, that you've that this is a yes for you, and and I look forward to, you know, this this our second conversation now. As I shared with you before, your writing such as something immense and vast in me, and in our first conversation, also just I I I I, I so deeply enjoyed just being with you for this time and being in this conversation and. A lot of my friends have shared our episode with their communities and, you know, our, our things that you shared, again, that they, they touch something vast and immense in, in mm. people. And um, so, you know, I, I feel a great honor uh, to help share you and, and your work with others. Thank you, Brian. So Much appreciated. My intention for today is to talk a lot less. Than I did the first time. I at the same time I feel my heart beating. I feel again that sort of nervousness of, wow, how do we approach this? And for me as a as a you know as a a man aware that I I lack the presence of of elders, true elders in in my world, being able to sit with you for a time is is it feels like something that should happen regularly and yet it is so rare that I even that I feel the the nervousness of that and the, mm. and the so again thank you mm. for being here you're welcome yes to this conversation you're welcome I want to start with um a quote you wrote uh, in your book you wrote in your book it wasn't a quote until you wrote it now it's a quote okay. <laughs> uh, that actually another man uh, one of my men's groups uh, picked out, and I want to start with that to kick us off today. It is those who undertake the full journey into their grief come back carrying medicine for the world. You know, my my hope today, Francis, for our conversation is that I I know that I am on the precipice of this journey into grief in a way that I've never really embarked upon before. And my hope for our conversation today is that that even both certainly myself but also those who are listening we can come away from this with kind of two things. One a, a better understanding of why this journey matters. Not as just a like a one-time thing we do, but why a, a regular practice of of I don't know grief work or sorrow, attending to sorrow, apprenticing with sorrow is important. And, and two, 
what it could look like to actually begin to host regular, you know, living community rituals in our own homes. Because I'm, I'm eager for that, and I also feel a lot of fear. I feel afraid mm-hmm. at the precipice of that. I'm ready to do it, and I feel fear. That's wise. Well, let, let's start there. What are we talking about, right? Come, come back carrying medicine for the world. You know, this is a very old thought that when you're, particularly in a, in a state of acute grief, when something near and dear to you has left, died, however it's been changed and transformed in you, you leave the ordinary world. You, li- you leave the daylit world of work. And I mean, you might still have to go to work because we are so inhospitable to grief and its customs and its requirements on us. But on some level, you, you're not walking in the daylight world anymore. You're, you've begun a, a sojourn into the underworld. And in many traditional cultures, there's a recognition that, uh, that you've left and that you're doing some kind of deep work that can only happen or that happens only in the dark, in that territory of sightlessness and um, solitude. And so what happens in that place is you are being remade by grief. You are being, in a sense, disassembled. I mean, anybody who's gone through acute grief knows that things just fall apart. Uh, You don't know which way to walk. You don't know how to brush your teeth. You don't know how to stay in friendship. You don't know how to do anything. Nothing makes sense. Uh, because that ordinary world, again, has, has been basically um, severed. Now, the work that happens in the darkness is one of being, it's not just an endurance test down there. How do I get by? How do I get out of here? But it's really engaging that material. See, grief doesn't just want to be endured. It wants to be engaged. So we work the grief. We write it, we dance it, we put it into ritual, we, you know, we, we draw it, we find ways of, of giving it shape and texture and form. And in that process, some alchemy occurs where the grief and the soul kind of fuse into a, a more, into a spaciousness more capable of recognizing our deep interaction with the whole of the world so what what grief really teaches us is that we're inseparable from one another and from the anima mundi the soul of the world we're tangled up with all of it it's only our, our kind of western individualistic notions that give us this fiction that we're separate from it but what happens again when that grief takes hold and works us deeply we are we are being remade in that process and deepened and ripened by the heat of grief. And when we return, if we're really allowed the full time in that place of, de- of depth and descent, we come back different. We come back more capable of recognizing your sorrows and their sorrows and the earth's sorrows. And we come back in a sense with a greater capacity to address, to respond, to stay open to the sorrows of the world. And that's what we need right now. We need human beings capable of staying open to what is happening. Otherwise, if we, if we don't register what, who, what's going on, who will? So I don't think grief is just about, uh, again, me resolving something, but being dissolved into something. Yeah, you quote uh, Stephen Jenkinson, I think he was a uh, biologist. Uh, I can't remember exactly his title but his, or his work, but in your book, you quote him. He says, hold your sorrow to a degree of eloquence whereby everyone around you will be fed by your efforts to do so. Mm-hmm. Again, just there's a vastness in that, in that stance, I suppose. You know, I have a friend right now whose father uh, just passed and they knew it was coming. It wasn't a surprise. And my friend, who's just turned forty, he 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 told me in the in the days following. He said he said, 
I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. This is, and this is a man, like he literally doesn't know what to do with himself. He has a small child, but he doesn't know what to do. And he's, even his, his, his Jewish faith isn't really helping him find his way. You know, I know there's a lot of, there's rituals and certain practices and the Jewish faith, certainly more than what I would be supported by <laughs> as a, mm-hmm. you know, not really a religious practitioner. And so I'm, I'm like, he, he, he's suffering the obvious loss of, of the death of his father and he doesn't know what to do. And I'm also, you know, mindful of just the, and you write about this as well. And I look at my life, like there's nothing obvious for me to grieve, but I don't know what to do either. Well, that, that's part of our uh, cultural fiction is, is doing. Mm. Uh, grief stops us. Mm. We feel immobile. But we keep framing, and I think particularly for men, we keep framing, and I, I should be doing something about this, you know, rather than being with it and being educated by it, being you know, broken open. I mean, this is heart work. If we don't know how to be with that tremendous sorrow, I mean, your your friend's grief is because he loved his father. And grief and love are have been entangled since the beginning. There is no grief that's not connected to, to, to the loss of love. And there's no love that does not have grief latent within it. Everything we love, we will lose. Everything. Either by their disappearance or ours. So this thing about doing, uh, I'm glad he doesn't know what to do. Because that is really what's required is a certain pausing, a certain stopping a certain dropping into silence and solitude, even though I speak about community all the time around grief work, and we will talk about that, I'm sure, today. There is a certain hospitality that we're asked to provide to grief, which is about silence and solitude. Can we slow down enough to become attuned to the voice of grief, to the subtle whispers of grief, Sometimes the loud cries of grief that we can drown out through anesthesia and distraction and, and doing. And there's nothing wrong with doing, but it, it, it tends to preoccupy so much of our psychic lives. And so there's a, there's a requirement in grief work of being able to slow down and drop down. And uh, it's like when we go into that underworld space, as I've said, it's more like, it's more like crawling and brailing, we can't see, so we don't know what to do. But we can sense and we can feel and we can caress and we can be touched by the atmosphere in the dark, you know, and the whispers that come out of the dark. And that's really what we have to do. And that's also so damn uncomfortable because we think we should be able to do something and somehow then alleviate the weightiness and the gravity of where we've just been taken. Mm. Yeah, you say, you, you mentioned there, the first gate of grief, everything we love, we will lose. And you write in your book, Wild Edge of Sorrow, that grief is akin to praise. It is how the soul recounts the depth to which someone has touched our lives. To love is to accept the rights of grief. Yeah. It's beautiful. That's fierce, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a fierce thing to, re- to really open our heart to loving another, whatever that other is, whether it's an animal or a, a place or a home or a partner or a friendship. On some level, we know this isn't going to last. This is a termination date. Again, either through my disappearance my death or theirs or their house is sold or you know beloved animal friends die Uh, there's no way to negate this truth and so we either kind of shroud the heart and remain somewhat aloof and and we love kind of uh, carefully and cautiously which is understandable partly because we're not taught anything about grief 
And second of all, most of us are being told we have to face our grief alone, which is overwhelming. You know, we can't do it alone. Grief has always been communal. It has never been a private affair until now. Sometimes the best we can do is talk to a, a private practice therapist. You know? And what you just also mentioned, Brian, about um, you don't have any identifiable griefs, but you don't know what to do either. And I've learned recently to identify. Actually, there's a lot of identifiable grief. There's a grief. lot of grief around us. Yeah. And even still, I don't know what to do. Learn that's, that's part of the apprenticeship, is learning how to develop an ongoing intimacy with sorrow. Come into companionship with it. I mean, if you had a friend who was in, you wouldn't try to do something, you would, you would be with it. You would sit and just listen. You'd hold a, a, a prolonged vigil for that friend. Well, what if the friend is you and the companion you're sitting with is grief? Who's going to be there almost every single day of your life? There's no real attention to the world without feeling some of that. How can you listen to any of the news? How can you read anything online or if we still read newspapers, which um, uh, is part of our grief? Uh, how can we even drive to work with roadkill on the side of the roads or homeless encampments? And it's impossible to not be, you know, touched by sorrow grief and again if you're forced to carry it alone and face that alone all praise to your heart for shutting down numbness i don't i don't have any judgment about numbness i think thank god the psyche can do that because if you're alone with all this it would just the weight of it would just crush you so we need friendship and community around our grief our walk with grief yeah, my friend, my friend shared with me that that you know his 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 community, a number of his friends when they would reach out to him in the days following would would ask him, "What can we do? Let us know if we can do anything." And he shared with me that I I don't I don't have an answer to that. Well, the question the question's backwards. You know, in a sense, if we had any familiarity with grief, we would know what he needs. You know, bring him some food, sit with him, even in silence, you know, bring some flowers over to the house, you know, just send him a quick message. I'm just holding you, brother. You know, yeah. you're not alone with this. But because we don't, we, we put it back on the person in grief to somehow give us, <laughs> give us our assignments. and Our marching orders. Yeah. To, yeah. To, to do something, to help yeah. you through it, to help yeah. you get through it as quick as possible. Yeah, yeah. Part of our, our learning is how what what does grief require of any human being? Yeah, my you know I see that my wife uh, we we you know we were living in Los Angeles for well she lived there for thirty four years and you know homeless encampments and they're they're not unusual. We encountered them daily, especially in the last couple of years, and now relocated to a new city and and still you know there are people without homes on. The corners we pull up to a light with signs and and you know I can feel that part of me that's just that just wants to shut down and say well that's everywhere and it's not I just can't pay attention to it constantly and my wife who 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 lives she feels everything acutely is a, a reminder to me constantly of the pain of this you know I'm I've learned having been with her for six years now not to tell her to not feel something. I mean, I still may at times in my ignorance and moment of blindness do that mm -hmm. because I don't want to feel it. And I, I think, you know, again, she's a great reminder to me, a great presence, a great gift to me that there, there is still oh, heartbreak daily. And, you know, this is, I think, Francis, this is what I'm, I'm really curious to explore is, is, you know, again, it's one thing for my, my friend just lost his father. But what about all of us, my wife, who, who, who hurts when we pull up to a stoplight and someone has a sign begging for food, asking for food? 
what about my friends that, you know, even I shared with you at the beginning of this conversation, you know, I'm, I'm a group of friends and I are very, very close male friends in my men's group. We're actually, we're in a, we're in a, we're in a pretty heavy conversation around the, the, the content of, of, of vaccines and, and, you know, the pro the trucker protests up in Canada and, and what we, what it all means. And, you know, we have a lot of different ideas and stories and perspectives around this. And, you know, one of the things that I just shared in the last couple of days with these men is as I kind of put my sword down for a minute, I just said, I'm scared. I'm really afraid. I feel a lot of fear when these conversations come up and the, and the fear has so many layers to it. And I also realize underneath all of that is a, is a, is a profound grief. The layers of it, Francis, are just I mean, it's, 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 I'm grieving my father inside of this, who, whose ideas I was never able to bridge to. I'm grieving the future, the ideas of where we're headed, where this is all bringing us in, in the future. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm grieving the present, the disconnect in families. I mean, how do I then, what I really w- would like to, to explore too is how do I bring you know, community together rather than, I feel like we're just fighting over so much content that's not that's we're 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 avoiding or not just not aware of or not paying attention to or not talking about the mountains of sadness and pain and fear underneath and instead sort of you know rising up in arms hoping that if I just win you over to my idea of or vanquish your position Ah, then I'll feel better and all will be well again. And that's clearly not working. <laughs> no, no, it's not working at all. And that's part of the remnant of what we don't acknowledge, which is the void of community and the commons of the soul. Because like you say, underneath the uh, vitriol and the positioning is a profound fear and a profound sense of erosion of loss things are in decay and every psyche i think on the planet has some sense of that is happening whether it's through environmental issues you know collapses of ecosystems water rising and here in california we haven't had rain all year so far since january and temperatures up in the close to 80 degrees and uh, this is not boding well so you can feel it already coming up fire season's coming in and I'm thinking about that in February, you know? Uh, so we feel it, but what do we do with it? Well, one of the protections against it is kind of that positioning of a, of a defense around who's wrong. And, but if we could begin to drop below those positions, what we would meet in is that deep, deep well of sorrow. And in that space, we recognize our commonality. We are living and sharing a lot of uh, despair, hopelessness, loss. I just finished writing uh, the preface for a, a book by Dwayne Elgin called Choosing Earth, which I think is, is out now. Mm, great. I remember you talking about this last time. Yeah, one of the things I said in there is that, you know, uh, grief will be the keynote for the coming generation you know it could be 10 20 30 years and grief is going to be the keynote so that doesn't mean to be said in a depressing way but it means in a sense how do we prepare ourselves to stay open to life because if we don't then it's already a done game so we are being fiercely uh, ripened, hopefully, during these coming decades to take our, our place in the world from the dominator role to a participant in this profound cosmic dance of life. It may not exist anyplace else. We don't know. But what if, what if this is the only one? How are we going to tend to this? So becoming fluid in the customs of grief, you know, how do we attend to that? How do I 
ongoingly come to the shrine of grief, both in my inner life, but also in my community, so that my heart does not become congested by so much despair that my, my capacity to respond to the world basically shuts off. That's the real danger. So th this is what I'd, I'd like to, to get at. You know, Rumi said, the wound is where the light enters us. I mean, throughout your book and your work, that um, the immensity that, as I said, your writing touches in me, I, I feel, I feel an aliveness. I, 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 I believe I'm, I, I'm 47. I, I, I'm proud of the life I've cultivated. I feel I've cultivated a rich and, and, and interesting experience in my 47 years. I, and I feel there is an immensity that I haven't really touched. And I feel that, that, that the grief and sorrow is the gateway to that. And that blows my mind to even be saying that <laughs> because of the culture I live in, mm -hmm. right? The heroic culture. And so how do I begin? I'm a novice. I'm, I know most of my listeners are going to be novices at this. How do we begin right here in our homes to bring community together without needing someone to die, something obvious to, to do this work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had an experience recently, Francis, that blew my mind. I was so confused by it. What, you know, I, I don't remember if we spoke about this, if I shared this with you, but it was, it was where my, my, my stepmother was on an incub uh, incubator, not an incubator, uh, ventilator. Incubators, I think that's what they put chicks on, mm -hmm. little baby chicks. No, this was a, she was on a ventilator, had COVID. And, you know, 50-50 shot, she's going to live. My stepmother. Now, I'm, there's a big story here, a lot of history, and it involves my father and all this stuff. And there was a brief moment where I got my father back in a way, in a way we, we, he and I got to connect in a way we hadn't in years. And she didn't die. She, she, she made it off the ventilator. Now, naturally, I'm thrilled, but I also noticed... Francis, I was, I was actually angry. I wasn't angry that she lived. Of course not. I, I feel horrible even saying, you know, mm. acknowledging that I had this very strange experience. But I had a sense that there was a number of things at play. And one of them was just, I was, uh, part of it was like, I was angry that I didn't get to grieve. Like, I, like part of me wants to go there so badly. I want to feel and, and, and cry and, and shake and be deranged as you speak about through this process and you know so tightly held together and again I, I love my life I have a beautiful life all these things but like how do we begin to get at this without needing something big to happen how, how can I begin to cultivate this create this in, in, in you know this weekend next week today I don't know but how, how do I do this well you know, as I mentioned in the book, that these other four gates are right there. They're swirling around us all the time. You know, parts of us that haven't known love, the, the sorrows of the world, the, the absence of the village and the community and the ancestral grief. Pay attention. Start to notice the ways in which you carry grief. Begin a courtship with grief, in other words. And... You can find, and I think any given day, like I said earlier, you're being affected by loss and by sorrow. You know, every day you will be immersed in that place. I'm not saying to live a life obsessed with grief, but to become hospitable and receptive to grief when it comes to you. And that's not an easy thing to do. So while simultaneously while you're cultivating this relationship with grief, you're also um, nourishing the heart through beauty, through friendship, through, through the erotic. Uh, there's ways in which you can consistently keep the heart open and receptive to sorrow. 
you know, that's, that's part of our work is to continuously create the conditions under which we can be receptive to the joys and sorrows of the world simultaneously. So if I want to, like, I really want to enter this work consciously and intentionally. And, and you know, part of me is thinks, okay, so, you know, next time I'm driving with my wife and we pull up and there's a person standing there with a sign, I can feel the part of me that wants to, I don't really turn away. I don't, you know, want to ignore people, but I can will often acknowledge, maybe wave, but there's a part of me that closes my heart at the same time. Yeah. I feel that part of me. It's like, oh, I can't, I can't deal with this. <laughs> you know, and my wife, my wife goes there. She wants to pull out her purse. She wants to looks around the car. What do we have? <laughs> you know, she, she utters some words about of her heartbreak. And, and so part of me, I get, I think a practice I can take on is to, to, to turn into it even with my wife sit there and, and acknowledge the sadness and the pain and the, and the, and mm -hmm. the, the awfulness of, of this moment. Yeah, and you also need to have compassion for the part of you that wants to turn away. Mm -hmm. Cause if we begin to judge that, that's another way the heart closes. So we have been conditioned to avoid, to turn away, you know, to stay in that, sunny, positive terrain of the hero. So there, there is a reluctance, there's a hesitation. And I have to touch that hesitation with the softest hands possible. No judgment about it. Oh, I'm turning away. Ah, that scares me. Ah, that's too much. Oh, I'm too alone with this. Whatever it is, that's the softening the membrane between you and the homeless person or the, you know, the, the clear cut in the forest, that membrane has to become thinner and thinner and more and more porous. And that is a courageous thing to do in a culture that is steeped in amnesia and anesthesia. You know, we forget how entangled we are with everything. And then we top that, that forgetfulness off with a lot of distraction, alcohol, drugs, porn, everything, you know, entire energy is devoted to. So can we hold that hesitation with kindness and warmth? See, the thing about grief is that it, it needs to be kept warm in order for it to move. That's the old alchemical idea, is that whatever it is that's caught our attention, whatever it is that's affecting us with sorrow. My core job is to keep that material warm so we can move. When we turn away from it, or when we try to do, you know, fix it, there's something that turns that material cold. And when it turns cold, it hardens and congeals, and then it, there's no movement. So then that's when my heart becomes congested. You know, and our number one cause of death in the culture is congestive heart failure. And it isn't just French fries and no. meat. It's, uh, it's the congestion in our hearts is very literally our undigested grief. So we have to keep it warm. We have to keep turning toward it and softening the places around it so that we can stay present and ask for support. Again, not doing this by yourself. What do you need to stay, keep this place warm? Well, friendship and kindness and, you know, shared words of uh, honoring and acknowledging the fact that this is too hard right now. There's too much. Our psyches aren't meant for this much material on any given day. We've been designed over, you know, several hundred thousand years, million years, to take in what is local, you know, in my watershed. Someone might have fallen and broken a leg or a, a child might have died from some illness or something. We're capable of processing that locally and usually communally. But now I'm 24 seven saturated by, you know, an information flow that just tells me that without reprieve, 
that there's anything out there that's helpful or hopeful or um, the only news we hear is basically what is fucked up. Uh, so we need to also be able to see the kindnesses and care and compassion of others and drink and drink and drink beauty. That is an unmistakable need of the soul. In, in the spirit of keeping it warm, keeping the, the grief warm, I, I want to, again, I think you, you really lit this up in me, the need for this. And I mean, you talked about, uh, you know, you've spent time with various peoples in, in other cultures and in Africa and more traditional ancient cultures, and they would have regular weekly rituals within which the community came together to to touch sorrow i mean mm -hmm. i feel like i'm literally dying to create that again so you know it's one of the gates of grief um that which we expected we did not receive yeah. I expected this. I expected community to rally. I expected the village. I, I, I remember I started working alone. Uh, maybe I'm 47. When did I really start working alone? Like maybe I don't know, 10 years ago or so. That was one of the most painful things I've ever been through, coming out of a workplace into working by myself at home. What is one of the most excruciating experiences? I, I mean. Everyone lauded it. It was such a, the greatest thing. You get to be in charge of your schedule. Oh, there's all this. Anyway, it was so difficult for me. Mm. I'm I'm so attuned to that grief, and I feel the 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 the, the deep deep desire to create living community again. It's part of the reason my wife and I had left Los Angeles to come where we are now because I was really struggling in the sprawl of that city to have community there. And so I, I, th I shared this with you in my last conversation that I told my friends, I, I want to start having monthly, and I don't know what to call it, um, but I want to, you know, some type of sorrow ritual, a grief and sorrow ritual, monthly. Can you help me? What, what, would that, what could that look like? How could I do that in a way that would be accessible even to, again, my friends that might think, well, nobody died, so I don't need to go to that. Well, I think just the invitation is powerful because that's what we're waiting for in some days. You know, when we put our, our announcements out about the grief ritual, they fill within, sometimes within hours. <laughs> uh, it's amazing what we think, what we think people don't want. Well, yeah, but that's... They're dying, they're craving. Yeah, absolutely, because I think yeah. the, the denial level is absolutely yeah. crushed. <laughs> <laughs> we can't deny what's going on in our culture and in our yeah. communities and in our ecosystems. There's no denial. I mean, you can try it, but, but so what can you do? Well, extend the invitation saying, you know, on Friday night, we're gathering to talk about loss. However, it shows up at your door. Yeah. And the only proviso is that we don't try to fix it. We don't try to give advice to anybody. We don't try to make it better. We really become you know, a containment field for the sorrows personally and collectively that are swirling around each of our souls. And it doesn't have to be complicated either. Maybe you say a poem at the beginning or you, you know, light a candle and just, and then, but make space around everyone's share. And you can do simple rituals. I have offered a couple of rituals in the back of my book. And you know, the stone mm -hmm. ritual is a very poignant mm -hmm. ritual. And what I what I love about doing ritual together is that you begin to see this is not my grief. This is our grief. I may not have the exact shape of grief that you have. Maybe I don't know about suicides, or maybe I don't know about you know a child dying or but I do know the space you're in and that's ours to carry. I mean, again, that, that loss of the village means it's up to me to carry it. That's not gonna work. 
I mean, that's why people come over and over and over again to the grief rituals is that this is the place where they can feel for a while that we are in shared territory and the commons of the soul are being attended, that we all know loss. Every person you see walking down the street is a carrier of loss. And if we don't tend to that, that's when we become hardened to each other, to the biosphere. So this is not just, um, you know, good hygiene to keep moving the grief. It's also soul activism. This, this keeps us entangled on a deep, deep level with the, with the soul of the world you know, how, and how it shows up. So it doesn't have to be a complicated thing, Brian. You can, and even, even if people, like your men's circle, even if they're afraid, if they hear one person say honest words about loss, it touches them, it moves them. And it's not like every person's gonna grieve that day, but that's the idea of the, um, communal cup of grief is that if one of us grieves, one of us shares sorrow or tears, all of us will feel different by it. And I've seen that a thousand times in rituals. You know, I often say we have to learn how to think like a village during our time together this weekend. You know, you may not grieve when we get to the time, but that's also the wisdom of ritual is that you do it again and again and again and again eventually you're going to be the one on the floor but in the meantime in yeah. the meantime you get to be the one supporting the others who have gone to the floor and i guarantee you, you will feel different when we when you leave this place whether you wept personally or not because that's that fourth gate we remember what it's like to be in communal space i can't tell you how many times someone will say after the end of the weekend saying you know what I've never done anything like this before in my life, but it felt oddly familiar. This is that the, the deep structure of our soul expected this. This was the setting that it anticipated. I wasn't gonna be condemned to solitary confinement with my grief. I was actually meant to be in this kind of space to sing together to weep together, to share dreams together, to eat together, to dance together, to laugh together. Now, when we get close to the end of the ritual, there is this shift in the atmosphere. Joy comes in the room. As our hearts feel less burdened, as they feel more spacious, we begin to remember that we also know joy. And there's it's, and it's infectious. It, uh, it's gorgeous. It's just beautiful. Now, now, I know this is something that I'm just going to have to experiment with, dive in and experiment with and find my way and, and, and understanding beautifully so that, that my community, will, we will find our way together. This yeah. isn't just for me to create. This is that we, we create this together. And But as I'm, again, and I imagine a lot of people listening are just at the precipice of this. Some of our listeners will have never even imagined doing anything like this. This is the first time they're hearing of it. And, and it's my hope that likewise, there's a, there's a, there's a spark or, or a, you know, a pilot light that is sort of being turned up a little bit right now in people. It certainly has been in me, you know, since I, particularly since I dove into your work. And by the way, any, anyone listening, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, it's, it's probably the book I recommend most to people right now across the board. I mean, and you know all the all the men that I've been working with in the last few years, um, this book just continues to reverberate and resound. And and I really think that word immensity, that vast, like it just, I feel like there's an entire cavern of 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 vitality, of life, of of something inside of me that that has been sealed off. That this your work is pointing the way towards well I, I like the word vitality there because so many of our projections onto grief is that it's deadening mm -hmm. that it, it, it's like depression we equate it with depression right you know and i really want people to hear how yeah. 
grief is is wild it is feral it can't be domesticated it is so imbued with life force that when you really open to that you are so alive doesn't mean happy which is our obsession right now collectively and psychologically but you are alive fully fully alive in in the dynamic of grief and sorrow and loss and i want people to begin to trust that i think mm-hmm. we are we're so afraid of being taken hostage by grief yeah but if i go there i'll never come back and i often say to people in my practice you know if, if you don't go there you're never coming back that some part of us is kind of on hold we spend so much energy trying to keep that grief out of our hallway What's that little Denise Lebertov pope to, to speak of sorrow works upon it, moves it from its crouched place, barring the way to and from the soul's hall. So we need to find ways to speak of sorrow, you know, to bring it out and express it so that my pathway to my soul is not blocked. You know, that's how vital it is. That's how crucial it is. I understand two essential components of, of, of grieving, and I'm not sure if I have all the language right, but it's containment and release. Yes. And I'm, I'm exploring containment, right, in terms of, okay, bringing my, bringing my community together for, let's say, a monthly ritual or get, just gathering ritual. And this fear comes up for me in the containment. And I, I think this is one of the reasons why I, I, and I think p- perhaps many, but certainly speaking for myself, why it, and you, but you've said it a few times. If I go there, I'll never come back. If I open this, it'll go on forever. It'll consume me. There's so much, I think that's a, it's like I can instinctively know there's so much there because of, it's been long ignored <laughs> that if I go there, you know, you, you've done three day, you, I think, I'm sure you've done all kinds of different workshops and retreats and practice and everything. Three days. I get it. I get why three days would be a good, good, a good idea. How do I do that in one evening? How do we close a, an evening? Mm. Like what happens in, you know, three, just a few hours? How do we do that so, so we don't send people off? This is the fear that arises in me, the thought that arises in me. How do I help people leave that experience not just drowning in what was what was brought forth it's a good question uh, i think the amount of defensiveness we have around opening that gate is pretty dense it took me three grief rituals before i shed a single tear and in 40 years of working with people i've never seen anybody you know never come back like I said, you know, grief isn't trying to take us hostage. But your, your, your comment is a good one, to be cautious because of that, that bulkhead of, of uh, defensiveness against our own grief. If we break that open, there's a lot of grief that comes. You know, so we make agreements. Like, like if, if somebody's in that deep of need, they can call one of the other brothers in, the, in, in your circle. Or in, you know, if it's a multiple gendered group, that we, we hold each other, you know. Uh, but I think an evening of touching the grief really is, is small enough and tight enough to at least begin to touch it. It's more like we're caressing our grief. Three days is often what we need to really enter the room of grief. Um, we really are slowly softening our defenses against it. And we give practices, writing practices, um, movement practices, uh, small group practices. How do we, what we call compost the grief so it's not so hard in us. Now we can access it, access it by the time the grief ritual itself, the ritual proper is being conducted. I can't think of how many grief rituals I've done, over a hundred maybe three or four times in all those rituals, 
did someone go to the place where they needed help coming back? And that's when I, you know, when we're grieving in a deep way, we're still aware that we're grieving. You know what I mean? There's, there's a part yeah. of me that notices I am really in deep grief right now. I'm in it. But there are some times when the grief becomes so strong that you slip over an edge and it becomes what I call grief grieving grief. There's no one witnessing it internally. And that becomes unproductive. It's, it's like you are now uncontained in the relationship you're having with your grief. So we have to go down to the shrine and cool them down. Most of them we're trying to warm people up, you know, bring more heat. More, you know. But sometimes we have to bring water down there, put water on their forehead, on the back of their head, on their hands. We get them to sit up and look us in the eye. Can you see me? Can you feel me? And then we bring them back to the village. They might still keep crying, but there'll be people there with their hands on their shoulders. And you know, we have to monitor that. And we tell people that before we go into the ritual, that we are keeping a very close eye on what is happening to you. You are being held. Now you can't let go. So you talk about containment and release. As long as we are doing our own containment, you can't also do the release. So you become a permanent containment field for your grief. So we all need spaces where we're held, where the only job I have right now is release. I can express some of this. I can set some of this down. You know, and if we're doing that collectively in a shared way, and if you, particularly if you're doing it repetitively, like once a month, you'll begin to build up that field and build up the faith First of all, that grief isn't trying to drown me. It's my lack of faith in grief. That is more frightening than the actual encounter with grief. And then we become kind of mutually responsible for holding that space for each other. See, otherwise you end up being, you know, the container for all them. And where do you still go with your grief? You know? The, 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 the container needs to be held too sometimes. I have places where I can take my grief. People ask me that all the time. Well, where do you take yours? Believe me. You know, I couldn't do this work if I just was holding the space for everybody. You know, I absolutely have places I can be on my knees, letting it roll and know that I am being beautifully tended. That's a good question, you know. How do we communally make sure that all of everyone in this circle is being witnessed and watched and supported even beyond the end of the night? Yeah, thank you. That's it's it's very helpful. I I'm both excited and a little terrified of um of beginning this particular journey direct into sorrow and and grief. Well, again, I would just add that it's a wise fear because any true ritual space invites the wild edge of sorrow. I mean, that's that's why I call it that, is that when we really go into deep ritual work with each other, that's what we're inviting in. We're inviting in those parts of us that are, are kind of seared by grief and wrecked by grief. And it's a lot of a deep intense emotion to bring into the field so it's a good it's good to go in i, I go into every ritual kind of oh shit you know here we go seatbelt time and you know but also i guess one maybe other thing to add is that ritual only works in the sense in the context of the sacred so this isn't brian holding space you know, it's ancestors, it's the land, it's, uh, you know, whatever you want to call that other world. This requires big medicine. And this isn't, again, about me heroically holding space for everybody, but me in collaboration with everything that stands around, behind, under, and above me is like, help me do this, help us do this. Yeah. 
So I'm, I'm aware of time and I'm, I'm very eager to continue this conversation with you again in a future conversation. And I, I want to just, just check in with you. Um, two last things. Uh, one is I'm aware that your friend Maladoma Somme passed in December. Yes. yes. I, I don't even know what question I have. I, I, it's more of an acknowledgement and, and how are you? And uh, were you able to be to to be in community at, at that time? I mean, well, a lot of the people I work with and uh, my village here um, all have worked with Maladoma. When I was teaching with him on their own, I, I was really profoundly stunned by his death uh, to a degree on which almost surprised me. Um, and I began to see how our friendship have, has affected most every aspect of my life. From just the way I, I work in my practice to what I'm teaching to the spaces I hold for people down to the songs that he's taught me. And I mean, that was a profound time in my life working with him. And, I will always, always treasure our friendship and uh, the collaborative things that we created together. And um, yeah, I miss him. Yeah. Well, I didn't get to know him personally. I knew him through your writing and sharing and through uh, a Bill Plotkin, also another author, you know, Nature and the Human Soul, I think his book, I also encountered Maladoma, but knowing your, your, of your friendship with him and his role in your, in that rite of passage, that initiation thing that <laughs> they did for you. I want you to know that I, I also, I, 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 I feel the, the sorrow. I feel the, both the gratitude and the sorrow that I, I just can't even imagine you would be holding and sitting in, um, with his passing. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Thank you appreciate that and now he is undoubtedly the one who most um, taught me about the power and the healing capacity of communal ritual you know that i mean what ritual really looks like i mean i was raised catholic and they call those rituals but i see them more as community ceremonies you know they're they're, they're nice they're they're beautiful they're supportive they hold they reinforce the community but they don't give us that vertical drop where you are as i said deranged and all coordinates are lost and you are rearranged through the process and that was the first place i really really experienced that yeah yeah well um, last question, and this is, f uh, I know that you have a, a series of workshops coming up on the five gates of grief. Yes. Uh, can you tell us about that? I want to make sure that my listeners know uh, how to access that and, and, and when that's when that's happening. You can find a link to that on my francisweller.net website. It's being sponsored by the Rose Center in Massachusetts, and uh, I've done several uh, workshops with them and they're wonderful they're, I think given the givens of our COVID circumstances yep I'm beginning to see you know that there's there still is great value in gathering together even online and working in small breakout rooms and and there will be um, very particular practices I will give you give people for every gate as a way of really dropping deeper into the, the felt experience at those gates. And then there'll be a place to share that. Uh, so then we begin to create a communal sharing around how that work with the second gate, you know, the reclaiming ritual affected them or the, the earth ritual that you'll get. And I mean, we need to begin to kind of um, bless and uh, well, just nourish each other's imaginations around what we can do and what uh, we're back to doing, but uh, <laughs> you know, how we, how we can respond to the presence yeah. of these sorrows in our body, and yeah. uh, 
and taking them into ritual and imagination and community. Because that's, the, that's yeah. the right context for these things. That's, it always has been, and I think it always will be. Well, I think, I think you know, like, I, I, the doing is I'm going to call my friend, and then I'm just going to listen and be with him. Yeah. That, the, the doing is just showing up. Yeah, exactly. I think creating the container for then whatever happens, happens. Yeah. yeah. And I very much look forward to this workshop. I'll be doing everything that I can as well to let people know about it. And Francis, as, it all, as always, this, the, the time with you is precious. And I'm, I'm, I, I come away from our conversations just renewed and, and revitalized and grateful. And, uh, you know, my, my, my wife loves it when I get to talk with you because she, she feels my, (laughs) she feels the gift of it. So thank you on behalf of my wife and me and my listeners as well. And, um, I'm, I hope that we can do this again soon. I'm I know we will, you know, beautiful, sir. All right, Brian. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Be well. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Francis Weller. You can find Francis at FrancisWeller.net. Also, again, I strongly recommend registering for his upcoming training on the five gates of grief, essential training for all humanity, I say. You can find that at row.center, simply www.rowe.center. And remember, if you're a man who's ready to elevate your relationship game, Learn more about my new six-month relationship coaching experience specifically for men. Elevate your relationship. Learn more about that at elevaterelationship.com. Don't go to elevateyourrelationship.com. We didn't get that URL. We got (laughs) elevaterelationship.com. And finally, if you were served by this, please go write a review right now on your podcast app so that you too can lead more men this way. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired.